Welcome to I'm So Obsessed, where we talk with actors, artists, and creators about their work, career, and current obsession. I'm your host, Patrick Holland, and today's guest is the Olivier Award-winning playwright and writer, Katori Hall. She's also the showrunner of the amazing Stars series, Key Valley. The show is set in a strip club in the South and follows the lives of the dancers who work there. It's all about their relationships with themselves, each other, and with their customers. Katori opens up about the show, going to strip clubs as a woman, as well as her work on the Broadway show, Tina, the Tina Turner musical. She also discusses working with Samuel L. Jackson and Angela Bassett on her play, The Mountaintop, which fictionalizes the last night in Martin Luther King's life. Um, all right, Katori, I am uh, I'm just so excited to talk with you. I got to see the first episode of P-Valley last night. And I have to say, like, we yeah. get these screeners sometimes, and uh-huh. the shows are good, but this was phenomenal. I was honestly blown away by the depth and complexity and just how smartly interwoven everything was. And it's also really entertaining. How would you describe the show? So P-Valley is a one hour drama set in the dirty, dirty South in this <laughs> club called The Pink. <laughs> it centers on the lives of the dancers who are working there. It's about their relationships with themselves, between each other, with the customers. It exposes all the grit and glitter and and shine of that interesting <laughs> world. <laughs> I would say the characters are, I mean, I, I just found the characters so compelling. Uh, they're likable, but very flawed. And I'm wondering like, where did you dream up these characters and this world? So I grew up actually going to strip clubs. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of people are are surprised when I say that, you know, growing up down south, you go to strip clubs as a female customer. And I've gone to birthday parties there. I've gone on dates. <laughs> I've even really? on a date to a strip club. Shout out Magic City, Atlanta. Um, and, <laughs> and it's just, it's this space where, yes, women are, you know, stripping and it, it can definitely, um, it's definitely, and it, it could be an exploitative space. But what I was always amazed by uh, were the women who took their craft seriously in that, you know, they honed and and worked so hard because and they took pole dancing to a whole nother level. Like I would say that it was more like a theatrical experience than anything else. It felt like I was at Cirque du Soleil. And so I was always enthralled by these women flying around the poles like birds. And it was it tattooed itself on, on my mind and on my memory. So fast forward, my tail tried to take this pole fitness class at this gym <laughs> in New York City. I'm like, I'm gonna do what those girls was doing. You know, I can twerk a little bit. And so I'm gonna try <laughs> just to like get my body together. Oh my goodness. Oh my God, I could not do what those girls could do. And right then and there, it just made me have so much more respect for what they do. Like I said, it's a, it's an athletic sport. It is an art. It is a craft. It takes years. And I'm telling you years to get to a, a certain level. As a matter of fact, there's even pole dancing world championships. And so I really wanted to to just teach people around the world about 
the craft of of this amazing art form and and so i that was my entry point and i i decided to do a lot of research it took me six years to visit all these different clubs and to to interview all these these women it was just so important to me to to get the reasons as to why they chose this profession. And so that was my my way in. That is where it comes from. It, it comes from my lived experience being a, a, a black girl from the South and just, you know, hours and hours of, of, of research um, that I felt was extremely important to do if I was going to portray this world authentically and truthfully. I mean, I have like like a million follow-up questions, but I want to start with those. I want to go back to your husband. How was that date at your at the strip club like with your husband? <laughs> he didn't like it. He was like, I feel like I really can't enjoy myself because you look at me <laughs> enjoying myself. <laughs> uh, I was gonna say years ago, I, I dated someone who played roller derby, and one of her teammates was one of the competitors in a the the world. Um, um, the pole dancing championships. And mm. I would first, I'm like, I don't know if I want to go to this. Cause I don't know, like your husband, I don't know if that would be a sitting. And then you go and it's just like, it's unbelievable. It's like unbelievable. they're spinning and shooting up these pole. It's just, Absolutely. It's, yeah. It's stunning. It's stunning. And I, and uh, I just feel as though, ah, it's, it's just some of the most beautiful movement work that I've ever seen in my life. And it's interesting. Cause in the show, there's a moment where we see one of the characters, um, Mercedes and she's uh, I think it's like her Sunday night routine and she's mm -hmm. going up this pole and like the music just kind of falls away and you're just there with her yeah. and she's kind of almost like floating above everything about above, above her problems how do you come up with a moment like that and how do you find actors who can can I mean it's like Olympic some of the stuff she's doing Absolutely. You know, that moment was so special. Number one, we always wanted people to understand the effort and the hard work that goes into the dance. You know, Mercedes is the headliner of the club. She is the OG. She is the one who brings in the money, honey. And that Sunday night routine, um, from, from the outside perspective, you know, people can just, you know, just think that it's so easy. But the fact that we go up that pole with her and we see her from a, dis a distance and all that sound just falls away. And you, you hear her grunting, you hear the ragged breath, you, you hear the squeak of her skin against the metal. And that to me, just, you didn't need any dialogue <laughs> to articulate how hard that, that work that she's doing is. All you needed was the sound. And so we, we, it was interesting because it kind of happened by accident this choice it was a happy accident in that when we were shooting on set we did not get as many pov shots as we wanted to you know this show is centered on the female gaze and we've always planted the audience you know on in the high-heeled shoes of these women it's a way for the, the show not to feel exploitative but unfortunately what happened is we didn't get an opportunity to get all those shots that we needed that were kind of on our shot list um just because of time there was just too much to do 
And so we we were like in the editing room, like, oh my God, we don't see the audience, you know, from from Mercedes' perspective. We're just watching her. Um, so what ended up happening, and this was a collaboration between me and my amazing post-production team, we were just like, how can we make this feel more subjective? How can we put ourselves in 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 Mercedes' body? And so we came up with that idea of making all the sound drop away and that immediately just makes you understand and 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 you are flying up there with her and we decided to rely more on sound than on the visual and so yes it's so hard to find actresses who can do that i mean the 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 work that Brandy Evans, who plays Mercedes, did to even try to get close. Because <laughs> she's a former dancer. Uh, she trained as a dancer. She teaches hip-hop and heels classes. She used to dance background for Katy Perry, even Beyonce. And so she's a, she's trained. And so she was able to use her skill set and translate it into the pole dancing skill set. And so she actually was able to do quite a few of her own pole tricks, but we ended up having two body doubles per dancer. Um, and so her body doubles were Spida and Massacre. These two amazing, <laughs> I mean, can't, by their names, Spida. Now their names are amazing. <laughs> yeah, Spida used to be a dancer at Magic City and she's actually a part of um, uh, a lot of documentaries that have been done on, on that strip club specifically, but she's very well known. And so she taught Brandy herself how to do a lot of the tricks as long uh, as well uh, as Massacre. And I really feel as though because we had such uh, an actress that was game and fearless and brave, uh, we were able to in the edit room, mailed it to the point where you you don't know <laughs> that Brandy ever has a body double. But like I said, she ended up doing quite a few of her own stunts. Well, and I think the other thing that I found fascinating is like, we've seen strip clubs on TV and films so many times and a lot of those uh, portrayals struggle from like the same tropes and cliches and I'm wondering as you were doing your research for this as you're putting the show together how did you navigate those cliches to make an environment that it was almost more of a mirror of the problems of the dancers and that community let's be honest like the strip club is a very complicated place it is a space of exploitation like that's true there are a lot of women who have some very horrible stories uh, about working in that place. On the other hand, though, there's a lot of women who have been able to gain financial freedom for themselves. And so what I always thought was super interesting is that I wanted to showcase that this world is not black or white. It is very gray. No one is completely bad. No one's completely good in this world. It It is very, very, very gray. And and so, you know, the, the tropes uh, that have existed in, in the media when it comes to dancers, like, you know, the stripper with the heart of gold. <laughs> yeah. You know, <laughs> and, and, you know, the, the, the evil queen bee is like, we took 
those those tropes and those stereotypes and we turn them on its head like mercedes you know she kind of feels like that that queen bee character because every club got a girl who the top girl <laughs> <That's> just, <laughs> it is what it is but i think uh what is a, a hallmark of good writing is can you show a human being have a mask on and then show them take off that mask and behind that mask is someone who is um exquisitely vulnerable who is you know manipulated by her her own mother who is struggling to um you know create a better future for herself and 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 for other girls that she actually teaches and so because we were able to kind of show all those levels in the show, it was because I had been in those rooms with women who were just like Mercedes. As a matter of fact, I met many Mercedes over the course <laughs> of my six year long research because for some reason, Mercedes is a very, very popular stripper name. Um, so <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> absolutely. So, you know, I, my eyes were always very open when I, was in those spaces and places. Um, I, I I took as much information and inspiration from from all of that time and just weaved it into my characters because they are painted from life. Oh, and the characters I'm oh my. There's so many of them. One in particular, Uncle Clifford is, <laughs> and that actor playing him is go. yeah phenomenal. Um, phenomenal. And, and I was just saying, uh, some one of the things I like about um, there's so many things I like about the show, but one of the things in particular is the dialogue. And then you have like Uncle Clifford, like I'm not going to do my Uncle Clifford impression, but I'd say, "Don't tell me it's cornbread when I smell them biscuits the burning." Burning. Um, yeah. Uh, you have like that a recurring line: "Sounds all poetic." And I'm wondering where. Um, <laughs> <laughs> where are, do those like, lines come from? Well, I have a I grew up in the South, so I know where some of them come from, but I'm wondering where where do the lines come from for the characters? And are there ones that stick out that you absolutely love? Well, it's funny that you said that line. That's one of my favorites. Um, and I have these three living ancestors, my mama, my papa, and my real uncle Clifford. <laughs> <laughs> you, can blame, you can blame them for the, the the character Uncle Clifford. They were my inspirations, and I always knew that I wanted to create a character that was masculine and feminine in equal measure. And so the things that Uncle Clifford says is because of the things that my Uncle Clifford said. <laughs> and one of those is, don't tell me it's cornbread when I can smell the biscuits burning. Um, it's, it's, you know, the way that Southerners talk, we just gotta, we gotta style, we gotta lilt it. We call it the Katori house language. You know, you gotta, you gotta <laughs> have open ears, open heart. You gotta, you know, know that this mixture of dialects and accent and slang is, is so special. We always say that it's a, it's like this linguistic feast that we serve up, uh, week after week after week, because we know. Everybody ain't gonna know what the hell we saying. <laughs> yeah, I'd say I, I, I grew up in the South. I had all that beaten out of me when I went to theater school for uh -huh. acting. So I have that. But every now and then, like if you're tired, if I'm tired or a little tipsy, like up, oh, I'm saying, up, oh, that's coming out. All right. I that's, say, that's... I say, the the Southern come out when I'm drunk, mad, or sleepy. <laughs> <laughs> and if you're any combination of them, look out, right? Exactly. <laughs> OK, 
Okay, so uh, the show itself is based off the play. P Valley stands for Pussy Valley. Where does that title come from for you? So as a Memphis native, there's actually a, a neighborhood called Pussy Valley. Uh, it, it's closer to, to downtown North Memphis area. And it's, it was basically an area where um, a lot of women who were either strippers or, or sex workers uh, in general, um, they, they lived in that area, but they were tough. They were tough women, very, very resilient. And because, you know, they, they, they were survivors. They were living in an economically depressed area and you got to do what you got to do to survive. And so I took the nickname of this neighborhood and kind of translated it to this, this area uh, in our fictional town of Chukalisa City. Basically, the club called The Pink resides in this area called Pussy Valley. And it's because a lot of women um, lived in, 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 worked in brothels in that area. And over time it transformed from that to like a more industrial area, which is what happens um, in, in the strip club world. A lot of strip clubs pop up in, in areas that have a lot of warehouses that are big, that are like on the edge of town. And so the name Pussy Valley is based off of a, a real place. And, and that's what its nickname it was. Um, but in terms of like, you know, why we changed the title, I always say that's the only fight me and stars had. <laughs> Everything <laughs> else was fine. But, you know, what happened was they had preemptively, stars had preemptively reached out to the carriers, you know, from Comcast to Time Warner, whoever, and asked them like, you know, will you put a show that has pussy in the title on your platform? And what they got back was a resounding no. <laughs> I think it was probably hell no. Um, you know, it, it was the, it was a business decision. We didn't want to make a r amazing show and have people not see it. So I I was a little like sad that we had to you know strike the USSY from <laughs> the title. But it, everybody and their mama know when they watch the show that. Oh. It's Oh, oh you know, and and you have a, that really cool credit little graphic at the front where it's like the neon sign or whatever, and the letters yeah. drop out. You're like, okay, I acknowledge you, stars. I, I get it. Um, what's it like adapting a play for theater into mm. a series? How did you go about doing that? It's so challenging, you know. As a play, Pussy Valley was overstuffed. You know, a play is a parenthesis. It it has this beginning, it has this ending, and you know. The problem with Pussy Valley was that it was a three-hour-long parenthesis that demanded was screaming <laughs> to be uh, a twenty-hour parenthesis, and I was just like, you know what? I hear you play. I hear you. I am going to, you know, transform you into what I think you should have been from from the beginning. There's just so many stories to tell. Like, I I talked to over forty women. And I probably should have over 40 characters, over 40 series regulars, but I don't. I only have 30. Just kidding. Only but, have 30. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, you know, I, I just really wanted to represent everyone and and their struggles. And, and so I decided that this long form storytelling platform medium of TV was, was just the, the, the right thing to do. You know, I always feel like TV can be a visual novel and there is this kind of novelistic quality to, to P Valley as a show. And I was just so I, over the moon that stars 
uh, allowed me this this opportunity as a first time showrunner and first time creator to flip something from from uh you know 160 pages to you know I don't know how many pages it's going to be because hopefully you know we'll run for seasons and seasons and seasons but we shall see. I, I um, hope so too. I hope so too. By the way. Yeah, but it was it's challenging because you have to figure out a whole new story. But I think the best thing about TV is that if you have amazing characters at the center, you good. And the play, we just snatch those characters out and plop them into a, a story that's open-ended. And I, it's been working like gangbusters. Oh, I, it works so well. And I'm wondering too, are you writing each and every episode? I wrote or co-wrote all but one episode. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It, I did a lot of heavy lifting. And it's because I knew exactly what I wanted. I understood these characters so well. And, you know, it, it was... It, now, don't get me wrong. The writer's room, which was made up of about uh, seven other writers, but, you know, I made eight. Um, it, it was extremely diverse. And they contributed so much. Let me tell you, so much. They helped me reshape things, figure out a great plot. But at the end of the day, I knew that it had to kind of come through the Katori machine and mm -hmm. go through my hands. And so I took on <laughs> that task of just making sure everything was tonally cohesive. Um, I'll never do it again, though. I'll say, what do you do again? <laughs> and I know Peter Morgan does this on The Crown. And I'm like, mm -mm. <sighs> Peter Morgan, I'm, I, you lying. You ain't writing all them episodes. This is crazy. Like, yeah, right, like that, uh, or uh, uh, there's that show, The Oval, and Tyler Perry wrote all 25, directs all 25, and yeah. has it all done before the first day of shooting. You're like, how do you do that? Like, that is, that's yeah. insane. I, mm -mm, nobody doing that no more. <laughs> um, but the style of the show is is equally as important, I think, as the characters. Like, how did you develop that? How did you communicate that to the production and the director and the cinematographer and stuff? So I, I came up with this term uh, called Delta Noir. And it's this, what I call, it's a twerk on traditional noir. Like traditional noir, it, it has these sharp contrasts and it has these men running around being mysterious and detectives and these femme fatales. Um, but unfortunately, I never saw black people in, in that genre. And so what I've done is taking the principles of that kind of old school noir and placed Uncle Clifford's and Mercedes, you know, in our world, the women are the hunters and the men are the ones that are hunted. So it's, it's a really interesting way to um, revise that, that genre because we, we use you know, saturated color. We're lighting dark skin in dark places, and we are leaning into uh, the the visuals of shadow when it comes to the cinematography in a way that is more about being enticing instead of you know uh, representing like you know evil. Um, and so, a part of it though is the fact that it's down south, and we embrace that beautiful yet broken landscape. Um, there's a heaviness to the world, but there's also a great levity to the world. There's a sense of humor. Like Uncle Clifford has a sense of humor about herself at all times. And I think it's important for audiences to be prepared to laugh a lot, cry a lot, and be surprised a lot. Yeah, and I think you, it's the blending of that. It's the, once like you're laughing or one like when we were talking about that um, Mercedes moment in the poll earlier, you're having almost yeah. like this religious experience and then the moment after she is just brought back to reality 
by seeing another character and you're just so scared for her. And I think um, it works so well. So uh, I want to ask you this, Katori, because the name of our podcast is called I'm So Obsessed. What are you currently so obsessed with? So, because of this damn pandemic, <laughs> obviously, I've been I've been locked in like a lot of people. And I have decided that this is going to be my time of self-improvement. Um, so I have been obsessed with Masterclass. I don't know if you guys yes. know about Yes, I know Masterclass. Yeah. So I've taken about six Masterclasses with uh, uh, different artists and whatnot. I, I took Margaret Atwood's Masterclass, Shonda Rhimes' Masterclass, Neil Gaiman's. Um, who else? Sarah Blakely, the the founder of Spanx, which, you know, I just threw in <laughs> more. And I think, you know, it has a lot to do with, with the fact that I'm always learning. I, I know I have, have so much to learn and I am very much about, you know, improving myself and and, and spreading my wings and, and, and always working on my craft. You know, the fact that I got an opportunity to like stare into Margaret Atwood's, you know, face for, you know, a few hours was, you know, tremendous and inspiring, especially because it's such a dark time. You know, I always want my 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 work um, to be in service to to my people, to black folks. You know, right now we are we are in these streets screaming black lives matter. Mm -hmm. And I feel I want to make sure that black stories matter because I think stories can allow people who, you know, have dehumanized us for so long or don't or don't care about black lives to understand us from a different vantage point story, I think really creates empathy and understanding. And so that's the reason why I think I'm always trying to improve my writing. And so listening to these masters have been, uh, it's been very helpful, you know, getting me through what has been a very challenging time in our country. Well, I think you've done that quite a bit with not only P Valley, but also uh, like your play, The Mountaintop, which uh, for people who mm -hmm. don't know, is uh, kind of a fictionalization of uh, Dr. Martin Luther King's last night. Uh, before he was assassinated. Yeah. Um, with that particular play, it's been obviously a number of years since uh, it was first produced. What does that play mean to you now? It means everything. You know, we just actually did a virtual reading of it, um, uh, a, a theater called Royal Exchange in, in, in the UK uh, did it. And it was uh, a flashpoint for me because it, it was sad that, I knew that this was a play that was that's always going to be relevant. Um, what can you do to make sure that we bend that arc? Mm -hmm. And and I think, like I said, you know, all of us can can do something. Whether you are a policymaker, uh, a business owner, or a storyteller, we all can make sure that we're marching towards that promised land. Which for me looks like a world of radical love and radical acceptance and, and radical equality. And I love how poetically you put all that because in one way it is poetry and art, but it's also, um, it's the only way to move forward like that is by having more and more people accept and be, and show people as they are and who they are. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, what did you want to be when you were a kid growing up? <laughs> I wanted to be a doctor. And really? 
I did. My mother was a phlebotomist. We call her the vampire. Uh, <laughs> 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 working in, in the hospital. And I really just loved, you know, this the, the way that doctors can come in and save people or take care. And I really feel as though it's just such a wondrous profession. And I, I think um, there was a moment uh, when I, I started playwriting. I was like, "Fool, what is you doing? And I decided, okay, I'm going to go back to school and do all those chemistry and biology classes that I didn't do. I didn't do no pre-med, but I, I think I'm going to become a doctor now. But luckily, um, <laughs> I got to play produce so that, you know, that production saved the world for, from me ha- being a doctor. But um, I just... I, <laughs> It's a beautiful profession, but it's funny because, you know, Chekhov was one of my favorites. He was a, you know, I think he was a, he was a doctor who who wrote plays. So it may have been that type of doctor. Yeah, that's a good, uh, not only playwright, but also a person to look up to who's has a day job too. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, I was, I, I wanted to ask this because I, I didn't think I'd have time, but um, I wanted, because you went to Juilliard and uh, real fast, like years ago, I was up for a directing program there. I was a finalist. I was so excited. Didn't get in. That's a whole nother story. But I remember oh. they sent me this video. They sent me this video. Was, I think it was Michael Kahn was addressing the graduating class of artists. He was like, and I'm not going to do a Michael Connor pressure, but basically it was like, for three years you portrayed kings and queens, lovers and villains. You trained at one of the world's best institutions for theater. But next week you'll be working at Starbucks or behind the counter at Tiffany's. And I'm curious, coming from some of these prestigious training grounds and places, what was it like that transition back into the real world? And how do you find that balance even now as you're, as you're getting some success being a writer? I must say, I, I didn't necessarily feel like I was out of the world going to Juilliard. And maybe mm-hmm. that has something to do with being in New York City and working at the same time <laughs> that I was at Juilliard. Um, the playwriting program isn't like a, a full-time, full-time program like the acting program. Um, while I did, you know, take some some time off to truly, truly focus on, on my craft, I, I definitely was constantly um, engaged and and never felt like the the halls of academia were separating me from from being you know a, a, a black woman who was an artist living in New York City I actually think it, it it fueled me it made me constantly think of myself as a cup that is to be filled with all of the experiences and all the observations uh, that I uh, was inta- I was taking in as as someone living and and growing up and 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 and, and becoming a, more of an artist at that time. So yeah, I never I've never felt separated from it, and it's always kind of been part and parcel. This this idea of education. Like I said, I I am always taking some damn class, <laughs> <laughs> always. Um, but you know, this idea of success is something that I take seriously, you know, I often sit back and I I think about my ancestors and I think about my mom. Like my mom was a little girl who actually used to pick cotton. She would, she's from Memphis too. And she would go across the bridge to Arkansas to pick cotton for her, her school clothes for every, um, every summer she would pick cotton for her school clothes for the, for the fall. And knowing that my mother used her hand to do that type of work. And now I'm using my hands to pick up a pen or click clack away 
at a computer, um, it, it's it feels like my responsibility. Like my success is not necessarily mine. It's it's my ancestors. It's my mom's. Uh, I want to wrap up by doing a thing called Pick One. It allows us to kind of talk about a lot of topics, which I mm -hmm. didn't get to bring up because I just find you very fascinating and very cool. <laughs> uh, but can Aww. you play Pick One with me? And I'm going to give you choices. It's not one is better or one is right. You can acknowledge that if you want. But just if you can talk things out a little bit. Okay. All right. So the first one is Theater ER or Theater RE. Ooh, I like RE. I just got into this fight the other day. <laughs> So T-H-E-A-T-R-E -E is what you like. I like R-E, but I, people are like, but that's British, you Anglophile. And I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'm like, you know, a low-key Anglophile. <laughs> well, also it's just kind of like, no, it's movie theater is E-R and theater is E-R-E. Yeah. I don't know. That's what I always heard. Okay. Uh, you you kind of mentioned this in the last answer, but pen and paper or laptop? Pen and paper. Memphis or New York? Ooh, Memphis. That was... <laughs> um, what's love got to do with it or the best? Ooh. And for those listening who don't know you, you did write the book for Tina, the Tina Turner musical. You got to work with her. We didn't get to talk about that, but maybe we can talk a little about Tina Turner right now. So I'm going to say the best. Ooh, and what's yeah. A fun fact is that Tina hates hate it and i think she may still hate uh what's love got to do with it she didn't think it was rock and roll enough and she felt like it was too slick she was just like i don't want to sing this like this don't sound nothing like no rock and roll um and so <laughs> I, I always thought that was crazy because that's that was the the song that you know started the her iconic rise um out of the ashes we were talking about the mountaintop and uh to the actors and that was samuel jackson angela bassett angela bassett was in a movie uh, yeah angela i know Turner. crazy yeah. right <laughs> it's like okay that's that's great um and the last one i have is tv show or theater mm, i can't choose don't put me in that position don't it's okay you, you don't have to choose but you can maybe just talk it out a little i think theater for hmm so in theater, you're you're the god, and I kind of like that. <laughs> um, meaning, like people can't change your 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 text. They everything stems from you. In television, you got a lot of people to be collaborating with, and that can be hard. But I love television because it's you. You have all this real estate. You can you can go in and out of places. You can put characters in in completely different situations just because you you have the flexibility to be inside one moment and one second later you're outside like you're not uh beholden to a, a one set or one room um but i love theater because theater is it theater is for stories that demand to be witnessed you to be inside of a room with a certain event or certain groups of people, I think it, it's very important. And I will, I don't think I'll ever, ever leave the theater. All right, so Katori, I have to say, I am so happy I got to talk with you. I cannot wait to watch more of Pea Valley and I, uh, and I hope it's as big a success as it is a great show because it really is wonderful. <laughs> 
I want to thank Katori for chatting with me, and I want to thank you for listening. You can watch P-Valley currently on Sunday nights on Stars. And if you enjoyed this interview, take a moment and subscribe to I'm So Obsessed on your favorite podcast app. If you really like this episode, please rate it. Until next week, take care.